That's where we are. We're working through the gospel according to Matthew as a church on Sunday mornings, which is our, it's our normal practice. Uh, pastors are called to preach the word. They're not, and that's in 2 Timothy 4 2. They're not called to preach about the word. They're not called to preach using the word even. Uh, they're called to preach the word. And so we try to preach the word here and try to be faithful to what the Bible says, even to give the whole counsel of God so we don't stay in Matthew forever. We look at other things in the Bible as we uh, even relate to Matthew and other things. But Matthew 19 this morning. And this morning we're going to talk about the heavy topic of marriage, divorce, and singleness. Divorce is something we are very familiar with, with some one million divorces in the United States every year. Divorce is something we are familiar with as the church, with as many professing Christians getting divorced, basically as non-Christians. Divorce is something we are familiar with, all of us, because in one way or another, with numbers like that, I think it's safe to say that every single one of us who are here today, in one way or another, is affected, has been affected, and will be affected by divorce. Not only that, our Lord Jesus spoke about divorce upon, in multiple occasions, on multiple occasions. In fact, this is the second time in Matthew. He did it in chapter 5. He does it again here in chapter 19. You also have him talking about divorce in the other Gospels as well. So it's not something that God has not spoken to. It's not something that God is indifferent toward. Um, God wants us to know His perspective about divorce. Jesus Christ wants you to know about His perspective regarding divorce. Now, I just got done reminding you of what's true, that there are many divorces in our country, uh, that there are many divorces amongst Christians. We know that, and we know that. We know also that we're affected by divorce. But I would like to remind you of something else that I failed to remind you of that sort of helps hopefully set the pace for what we're going to do. I'd like to remind you that based upon what Jesus will say in Matthew 19... The fundamental problem is not divorce. The fundamental issue isn't divorce. The fundamental problem is marriage. Not that there's anything wrong with marriage, but that we don't understand marriage from God's vantage point and how great and how wonderful and what He's intended it to be. That's the issue with the Pharisees. And so in many ways, Jesus gets cornered, so he is talking about divorce. That's the issue that starts this whole thing. And he ends up launching into a marriage seminar. (laughs) Not really, but we'll take the time to pause and say, wow, if we only talked about marriage more often and what it's really supposed to be, if someone would only sit me down before I get married or before I even contemplate it and talk to me about God's perfect plan for marriage and how great it is, It certainly would help. And so we'll take the time to do that. That's why I didn't want to simply say today we're going to talk about divorce, even the title. Marriage, divorce, oh yeah, and singleness. We'll even talk about that, maybe briefly compared to the others, but that God has a plan for singles, even people who will be single for the rest of their life. Did you know there's such a thing as the gift of singleness? 
Some of you guys are saying and gals are saying, no, because I ain't got it. <laughs> if you're married, you know you ain't got it. <laughs> but if you're single, you might think, I, be thinking, I know, I know I don't have that. Or you might be thinking more, more serious, um, on a more serious level that, you know what? Maybe I do have that. Some of you know that you have it. I've talked to you before. Some of you have maybe never even heard of it, and maybe you need to think, stop and think about it, because maybe God has uniquely gifted you to be single, and that is what He has for you, and it's what's best. One thing we won't do today is get done. <laughs> Thus the long introduction. Uh, we, we simply will not get done. So what I've already planned to do, and who knows where it will go, the Lord knows, what I've already planned to do is, is to really work hard today, number one, at just looking at the text at hand. So I do plan to try to get done with this passage, which may or may not happen. We're going to try to do Matthew 19, 1 to 12, and deal with the passage in and of itself. Because it's too easy to try to answer all the questions, and you kind of miss the point of the passage. So let's just try to work on the passage. Then what we will do in, in the, the days ahead is we'll, we'll pose, we'll, we'll ask and answer many of the pertinent questions that this will bring about. There are all kinds of questions that relate to the biblical text. There are all kinds of questions that relate to our contemporary world pertaining to divorce and remarriage. So we'll do that at another time. The other thing I would like to do is, based upon biblical texts, multiple texts, uh, and, and wise principles found in biblical texts, I would like to probably spend a whole Sunday morning on looking at a biblical way to avoid getting a divorce which is basically going to be a marriage seminar from the Scriptures. And so that's, that's ahead as well. So I'm trying to give you a broader picture so you understand that when you're asking these questions, what about this, what about that, what about this, we're probably going to get to it. And when things are heavy today and, and burdensome, that might bring about questions. We're going to seek to answer those questions. And at the same time, we're going to seek to look at the positive from a positive perspective. What can I do to help my marriage? And we'll do that. Again, not from a psychological vantage point. Uh, psychological theories change and they ebb and flow. We're going to look at it from a biblical vantage point. What does the God who designed marriage say about marriage that will help you to have a successful marriage? That's a pretty weighty introduction. I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to do all that I said I was going to do. <laughs> Makes me want to pray. So if you would, pray for me and with me. Lord, thank you for this morning and this great opportunity we have to talk about something that really does impact every single one of us. And help us, Lord, to be diligent, to seek out what it is you said about this issue, not only this morning, but in the days ahead. Help us to submit to you and to your authority. Thank you for marriage. Thank you for what you have said about it. You're obviously impressed with it because you made it and have a specific plan for it. Help us to be impressed with it. Not what we've done to it, but what you have created for our good and enjoyment, for your glory. Help me today, God, as a, as a feeble, weak man to do my very best to think biblically and help others to do likewise. In Jesus' name, amen. Two pitfalls before we get into the passage. I'm going to try to challenge you this morning and at least next week to avoid in this whole matter. 
two major pitfalls you want to try with the help of God's great grace to avoid would be the pitfall over here, which is going to be the, the pitfall of, let's call it, what did I write down? I, I had it, accommodation. The pit, pitfall of accommodation. Here's what I mean. We see that there are about a million divorces every year in our country. Professing Christians getting divorced at, at an almost equal rate, if not equal rate. It's a problem. It affects our kids. It affects us. It affects so many different people. It's a major, major issue. So what we're going to do, since it's become normal, we're going to, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to accommodate that. And what I mean is, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to help or get involved, but we're going to accommodate it in saying, well, you know what? Since this is where we are as a culture, let's take that as the standard. And, you know, since addressing the culture and where people are from the Bible would offend people, perhaps make them uncomfortable, then we're, we're just going to do our best, you know, because God is a God of love, to close the Bible. Because we're in the name of accommodating our culture, we're going to try to do that. No, we don't want to do accommodation. We don't want to do accommodation. We, we definitely don't want to do that. That is a pitfall. Because if God says something about divorce and we're afraid to say it because of what people might think, then we, we, we've just taken God as the authority and we've put ourselves above as the authority and now we're in charge. And in effect, we're saying we're God. That's called idolatry, by the way. We don't want to do that. Another pitfall on the other side is compensation. Compensation, and here's what I mean. Accommodation, compensation. Compensation is going to be, well, you know what? God hates divorce. We know that because that's what the Bible says. And God has made it very clear that He thinks marriage is a great thing and marriage is to last a lifetime. And so what we're going to do is, and all these Christians are getting divorced too. It's such a problem. What we're going to do is we're going to compensate for what God doesn't say. And we're going to add extra biblical standards to make up for how far off we are. I mean, it is so far gone. What we need to do is not only say this is what God says and preach the word. We need to do that and we need to add some extra rules and regulations because if we overcompensate, maybe we will pull them back. That's called legalism. And we've been reminded, if we've been reminded of anything in Matthew's Gospel, for example, Matthew 15, Jesus hates legalism. In the name of being faithful, what happens? What happened? Jesus confronts the Pharisees for creating what they were, they talked about creating fences, rules and regulations around God's standards that are even more extreme than God's so that no one would even ever even get close to the edge and Jesus just takes them to task. We don't want to do that. Matthew 15, 6 says, And by this you, you, you invalidated the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. And so, while we're tempted to maybe add some rules and regulations that the Bible doesn't add, or to maybe make the Bible more conservative than God is, if you will, don't do it. Don't do it. Remember how Jesus feels about that Matthew 15. There was a day in my Christian life, you know, getting saved and having everything change and, and knowing that I don't want to be a liberal compromiser. So I'm a conservative, being faithful. And there was a day in my life, and I mean that theologically, not politically, 
There's a day in my life that I just assumed the more conservative, the better. Because that means faithful. Read Matthew. And it kind of cures you of that. The longer you're a Christian and the more you read the Bible, the more you realize God is not interested in you being a a conservative right-winger theologically. And He's not interested in you being a uh, rank liberal theologically. What God wants is for you, how about this, to submit to Him. This is what He says. He's the sovereign Lord. Stop acting like you are, either by being wider than God is or narrower than God is. Stop being God. And that's a whole other sermon, isn't it? Thank you for letting me preach it. (laughs) Liberalism, legalism. Two pitfalls. We don't want to fall into either trap. It's so easy to do. I would say even more easy uh, um, when you're you're doing battle. Even easier in a church like this. Because we're really trying to be faithful to what God's Word says. And sometimes we fall into the legalistic category and we don't want to do that. So just a word of caution. Well, I promise today won't only be an introduction. Matthew 19, verse 1. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Here's the occasion that brings all this about. When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him and He healed them there. Mark's account in Mark 10.1 also says, and fills in, fills in the details a little bit, He's teaching them. Uh, so in other words, Matthew 19.1 tells us Jesus was doing what Jesus did. <laughs> This was normal. When Jesus wasn't engaged in, in debating and, and having to silence the false teachers, when he, when he wasn't doing that, for the most part, what Jesus was doing during His downtime, what Jesus was doing is He was healing people in a supernatural way that no one else could do and no one else could explain. That's what makes Him unique. That's what points to Him as being the Messiah, not just a prophet, not just a religious leader. He's busy healing people. What else is He doing? He's busy teaching people. And we even learned in Matthew's Gospel earlier that the people were so impressed, not only because He could heal people in a way no one could because He was doing it supernaturally, He was also teaching people in a way nobody else taught because it says He was teaching as one having authority. He wasn't just quoting a bunch of other sources. He was just quoting the Bible and He was just speaking Himself on an equal plane with the Old Testament. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He won't go back to Galilee until after his resurrection, according to Matthew 28, 16. So everything is moving toward Jerusalem, moving toward his dead, toward his death, and he's moving on, teaching and healing. And then comes the infamously rude interruption by the religious gurus, the Pharisees. We see what happens. And I suppose if, if Jesus just had a small trickling of a crowd following him, they probably wouldn't care. But it says there was a large crowd. And when you are the religious power brokers of the day, when you are the authorities of the day, when you are those kinds of guys and a large crowd of Jews is following Jesus who says He's the Messiah, you take note. You've got to stop this. You either need to follow that Messiah and get on that team, or you've got to put a stop to it. And that's what they're going to try to do here. Look at verse 3 with me, if you would. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, not seeking to be taught like the others, testing, not being taught, but testing. Notice the the on-purpose distinction. Testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And if Jesus were a politician, and we know better, he, he, he'd, he'd, he would have found himself in a bind. 
Because you've got this sect of people over here who are more liberal. And these people over here who are more conservative. And there's debates amongst how you are to to view these kinds of issues. And so what is Jesus going to say? And this is what they want to have happen. They want Jesus to, to either offend this group or offend this group or offend everybody. Because what they're trying to do is undercut the credibility of his ministry. Jesus knows better. I mean, Jesus just got tossed a hand grenade. But like Jesus does so many times, I mean, he's the all-knowing, all-wise God-man. He can rightly assess the situation. He knows their hearts. He can diagnose their hearts, and he does. So he sees through the whole thing. And he refuses to answer their question as they've posed it, as he does so many different times. If he said yes, he'd be in trouble with some. If he said no, he'd be in trouble with another contingent. They're testing him. It's a malicious intent. But he, re- he refuses. He refuses to get squeezed. So Jesus, as we see here, is going to take their minds Maybe their heads is a better way to look at it. It doesn't seem their minds change. It's as if he takes their heads and just twists them. It's time for you to understand the sanctity of marriage. You guys are so wrong. You've even got the issues wrong. You're talking about something and you're, you're missing the big picture. I'm going to talk to you about marriage and what God thinks about marriage. In effect, he's going to blister them. Verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read? To me, that's blistering. (laughs) These guys are the Bible scholars. These are the guys who memorize books of the Bible after books of the Bible after books of the Bible. They, They know the letters. They know the words. They know the paragraphs. But they've been missing the whole point. Jesus has been emphasizing that with them time and time again. And he says, haven't you read? I mean, that is a huge, colossal insult. You guys are the ones who who are toting the books around. You guys are the ones who boast we know the Bible. Haven't you even read? Haven't you read Genesis 1? Haven't you read Genesis 2? Don't you even know your, your own book? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, this is so, so good here, made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Say, this sounds like a wedding. (laughs) Those are the things we should talk about at weddings. I'm thinking to myself after even studying this, I want to talk about that even more at a wedding. Not necessarily the divorce side of things, but the awesome, magnificent job that Christ does at exalting the sanctity of marriage. It's awesome. I mean, this is wonderful. This is meant, yes, to confront the Pharisees, but isn't it amazing how in the providence of God, while He is confronting error, He's exalting truth. Happens time and time again, and it's certainly happening here. I mean, what he just said there is an awesome, magnificent statement about marriage. I mean, he just basically lays out, here's the fundamental truth about marriage, is what he does. Let's note some of its features. 
I suppose if you don't understand anything else today, this might be one of those things to put on your list to understand. I mean, the first thing we end up seeing is, is if you look at verse 4 again, you've got God being the architect who had a specific design for humanity, even the way He made them compatible. Look, He who created them, God created them, He's the architect, From the beginning, oh, Jesus relies upon the Genesis record. That's just for free. (laughs) He who created them from the beginning, this is God, original plan, original blueprint, pre-fall, the architect, beginning, made them male and female. He made them from the very beginning to be connected, to be compatible, to be together. They're not the same. All right, let's let's note that carefully. I mean, this is in the infinite wisdom of God. That's how He made human beings. Pretty good. Number two, let's make some more observations about verse 5. From the beginning, by perfect design, God designed for them to leave their separate families in time and to be united. That's God's plan for marriage, to leave your family and to go and be joined to your spouse. Look what it says in verse 5, and said... From the beginning, from this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Even the words he uses are strong. They, they, the man is to leave. It's even a word, it doesn't, it's not intended here, but it's a word that's so strong it can mean abandonment. I mean, the idea is he really leaves. He doesn't stay mama's boy connected to the apron strings. By divine design. Moms, let your sons go. Anyway, that's for, that's for free. <laughs> so here, God from the very beginning is designing it. So there is, there is departure, there is separation. And then the word that he uses is this strong glue together word. He binds them together. He glues them together. He attaches them to one another. They are one flesh. Obviously, that has to do with sexual union, but it's more than that. They, they, I mean, they're, they're bound together. They are inseparable. There is a new family, a new entity. By divine design. Not because of some social construct that we've come up with through evolution. No, this is by the wise plan of God. Another observation we can make. In verse 6, we see the permanence and the sanctity of the union. In verse 6, at the end there, what therefore God has joined together. Notice, there's the sanctity of the union. God has joined together. God does it. Not the pastor, not the state. God has joined together in marriage. Let no man separate. It's permanent. The glue is supposed to be super glue. It sticks. And if you try to separate it, it tears the skin off your hands. It's meant to be together. God forges this new relationship through His providence. And they stick together. Pretty cool. It's God's wisdom. We've all heard about marriages made in heaven. Matches made in heaven. It's true. We might debate that before the marriage. But once it happens, at least in the providence of God, we'd say, yes, that is a marriage made in heaven. 
forged together. New family, new family unit, and it's all coming from God from the beginning. Not to be broken. Not to be broken by either party involved. Not to be broken by any outsider, because God joined it together. And you see the argument from the greater to the lesser. If God joined them together, let no man try to mess with it. Now, you have to pardon me for a minute, because here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to have a little uh, personal, private worship service. (laughs) Just me and God. That's what I'd like to do right now. That should be the right response as a result of that, as someone who's enjoyed marriage and who understands marriage to one degree. That's what I want to do right now. That's what you should want to do right now. You read that? God! You are amazing! I mean, this is just something that's been going on like this for so long, we kind of just take it for granted. But God, in your your infinite wisdom, what have you chosen to do? Well, you didn't make us androgynous, asexual beings. No! Can you imagine that? I can't even imagine being married to my brother. Come on! I tell, by the way, this is all for free, but in premarital, I tell, tell guys, I tell girls, you know, sometimes we act like we want our wife to be a man. You really want to be married to a man? They're going, what, what, me? No. Why do we act like that? That's just for free. That's counseling. But anyway. <laughs> and vice versa. I mean, I'm so, I mean, literally, praise God that he didn't make everyone androgynous, asexual beings like some sort of insect. He made us male and female. And not only that, by doing that, he, he built in attraction. He built in compatibility. He built that in. Well, that shows the glory of God. General revelation is what that is. And that gives glory to God. It's supposed to do that. Oh, and not only that, he, he, he made us so that we would need each other. So there's actually a need for me and my life for my wife. I need a helper. Who's, how about this, God, you're so wise, who's suitable? This is great. Not to mention the fact that in God's infinite wisdom, we would even see in the Genesis record, He allows us to have a family and experience all the joys and blessings that children are. Children are. And you just go down the list and, oh, how God, you, you have worked it out, not just because this is what we do socially, you worked it out from the beginning that I would leave my family. There's going to be a breach there. You want it to be a good breach, but there is going to be a break there, and I'm going to be united with my wife with some sort of spiritual superglue. God, you're awesome. This is great. I don't have to be alone my whole life. Having not been gifted to be alone? Not only that, it's not my brother. Not only that, I'm attracted to her. She's a helper, suitable. And that I can know that on the wedding day that it wasn't the liberal Presbyterian pastor who I didn't respect that said, by the authority vested in me, it wasn't him. I'd want to get remarried. Some of you say, should we get remarried? And we weren't even believers. And that guy who did it, foaming at the mouth. (laughs) You know what? I'm getting myself in trouble. (laughs) But it's true. I look back on that day and it was a great day from start to finish. I could care less about that guy because the Bible would have me to know that God joined us together. Blessed be our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us so much greatness. Marriage is phenomenal. 
We should be, and I'm not doing it justice, but that's enough for now. We should be so impressed with God and His greatness and all the blessings we have in Christ that we're just looking to Him saying, I just cannot even believe that you would do this for us and for me, and I can be a part of this great thing. It's so amazing and so magnificent that the last thing on our minds is, how in the world do I get out of this relationship? See, the Pharisees are asking the wrong questions. I mean, they're, they're so caught up in the minutia of self-centeredness that they're trying to figure out the best way to somehow please God and do what God never intended and have everything be okay. And Jesus is, is taking them by the head and turning their heads around and going, you know what you need to do? You need to look back at the fundamental issue. And remember, all the disciples are paying attention. They're, they're there with him. We know that they are because later on in the narrative, they're going to be asking him important questions. So he's setting the record straight. And my great exhortation to you, and we'll talk about it when we talk about having a stronger marriage, would be to study marriage, to look to God and what he said about marriage, and to be enamored with God because he's given you this great thing called marriage. That's going to be the fundamental place to start with understanding all of this. I don't deserve to have a great wife. I don't deserve to have a wife who loves me and who's a helper, who we compliment. We compliment one another. I don't deserve to be married to my brother either, but that's another story. (laughs) I can pick on my brother because you all like him. He's been here enough. He's been here more than I have lately. (laughs) Oh. Well, let's move on. We'll marvel at marriage later uh, in another Sunday, but let's move on. So Jesus showing his confidence in the Genesis record. It's not allegory. It's not fable. He sees it as true. He sees it as right. And what they need is not to try to figure out the minutia of divorce, though he'll talk about it. They need to understand the sanctity of marriage. That's the fundamental problem. Then in verse 7, they didn't like his answer. They didn't like to go back to Genesis. So what happens? Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Do you see what's happening? Here's what's happening. And you might not see it because we haven't read the whole thing yet. But here's what's happening. Maybe you do see it. They're trying to get Jesus to disagree with Moses. Moses who is the giver of the law, Moses, who is God's servant. I mean, they're trying to put Moses against the, or Jesus against the Bible. And then what happens? Oh, Jesus is exposed at being a fraud. He's not the Messiah. He's not the genuine one who comes from God. So they're saying, well, Jesus, if you're going to take that route, are you disagreeing with Moses? Never mind the fact that Moses, by the grace of God, wrote Genesis 1 and 2. They're trying to discount him. That's their whole agenda. Jesus fires back in verse 8, this cutting indictment. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. You want to know the answer? You, you want to know the truth? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. He's saying, you want to know the answer? The answer is it's because you guys are such awful, wretched sinners. It's because your heart was so hard that God allowed this. God permitted this. And you guys are busy saying, didn't Moses command this? Jesus says, I'll tell you what God permitted. And he did it because you guys are so filthy, wretched in your living and thinking. You're a mockery to God. 
So they wanted to engage Jesus in hand-to-hand spiritual combat, and they are failing miserably. It's as if Jesus is saying, you guys should know, of all people, you should know Genesis 1 and 2. You should know God's design for marriage. And you're trying to, you're trying to proof text me into a corner by, by, by making reference to something that, that God allowed through Moses because you're so awful and wretched. You guys should know better. What are you doing? Go back to Hermeneutics 101. Go back to baby theology class. I mean, they, they don't even make any sense. They have a twisted perspective. They're looking at some concession that God made, not the original institution. And furthermore, it may help to know this, and and we won't take the time, perhaps we will uh, next Sunday, we won't take the time to go to Deuteronomy 24, which is the, the subject matter at hand, I believe. God did allow for a certificate of divorce to be given to the woman. He just, they just talked about it. The certificate of divorce. Why did he do that? More than likely. He did it for the benefit of the woman who had no other way of even surviving in the culture. Not for the benefit of the men who were ugly and wretched sinners. You see, if it was adultery, if there's biblical grounds for the divorce, adultery, according to Leviticus, is punishable by what? Death. So these women that they were busy divorcing weren't committing adultery because they would all just be dead. And so what they were doing is they were dismissing their wives for lesser issues, which they had no biblical precedent for doing. And these wives are left to fend for themselves officially connected to that man who put them out. They officially belong to another man. How, how are they going to survive when they, they, they are not going to have their own job and their own means of making money, lest it be some questionable means in that culture? Well, what they need is something to say, I have been divorced by my husband. There's been a breach in that relationship. I can be married. Thus, they could be taken care of by someone else who would never do that if those women weren't divorced because they belong to another man. God, being gracious and and tolerant toward the women who were bearing the brunt of this problem, not for the men who were self-centered egotists that shouldn't have been separating themselves from their wives to begin with unless it were adultery, and that's not the issue because they'd just be dead, allowed for a certificate of divorce. Not for the benefit of these men, or should we say pigs, that had no biblical basis for divorce anyway. But for the benefit of these women, they were allowed to get a certificate of divorce showing there's been a break in their marriage. And what did these guys do? No wonder I called them pigs. They took that, which was to benefit these women, and used it to stake their claim to divorce at will. That's called perverting the intention. And they, they, they are just, they're abusing the Scriptures even. It's no wonder Jesus is so upset with them. You guys are using this somehow as if it were for you. And what you're failing to do is you're failing to look back at this fundamental issue, which is God's design for marriage to begin with. It's not that hard to understand what's happening here. Let's move on to verse 9. 
Then Jesus asserts his authority in a unique and special way like he did in the Sermon on the Mount so many different times with, I say to you. Verse 9, And I say to you, I, the Messiah, the one who speaks with the authority of God, I say to you, I who understands the intent of Scripture, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, that is porneia, sexual sin, a general word for sexual sin, and marries another woman, commits adultery. In effect saying, since this had become such normal practice, you can kind of let your wife go for whatever reason, you just give her the little bill of divorce and everything's okay. Probably so prevalent... That when Jesus says, if you divorce your wife except for porneia, spiritual sin, or sexual sin against you, then it's adultery. So probably in effect saying, you adulterers. Whoa. Again, so much for influencing friends. How does that go? Yeah, that too. Man. I think the disciples are learning something, though. Winning friends and influencing people? Okay. I think the disciples are learning. I'm encouraged. You know why? They don't say anything. (laughs) Because on other occasions, these disciples have been known, like in Matthew 15, to take Jesus aside and say, Jesus... You really ought to tone it down because you're offending these guys. Oh, they must be learning. Or Matthew just doesn't record it to protect him. He's just blasting them. I mean, what Jesus just said to them by pointing his finger, in essence, and calling them adulterers is definitely not kosher. If you know what I mean. Not good. Not good at all. Now is when all sorts of contemporary questions come up and biblical questions come up. and We're not going to get into those today. We'll talk about those next time. But let me just say this about verse 9. I think Jesus means what he says. I don't think you need to understand some other special nuance. I don't think there's some other writing you need to read to understand what Jesus says. I think Jesus says what he means and he means what he says. And you can understand it. Except for immorality. It's adultery. I think he means what he says, and we'll talk about the details of that next time. Well, now what happens? No more, no more Pharisees. I mean, who knows what happened? They, they quick recorded what they heard, and they're running back you know, to, to tell the upper echelons so they can mount uh, a further case against Jesus. We're not going to hear from them now, but the disciples have been listening. Just like you have been listening and I've been listening. Verse 10. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, that is God-ordained, inseparable, holy union, only to be broken by immorality, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, notice what they conclude. It is better not to marry. And on one level, you say, I'm so glad they concluded that. Because on one level, you're thrilled that they concluded that because what happened? They understood that marriage really is a big deal. I mean, they're they're catching on. That would be a good first knee-jerk conclusion for you and for me. 
you know what? It would just be better not to ever get married because you know what? Marriage is hard. And marriage has difficulties. We do live in a fallen world and it might just be better to not ever even get married because it's really hard to get out of. In fact, the only way out is the way uh, that Jesus specified. If God is that serious, maybe we shouldn't even get married. Knowing these guys, they were probably on their way as well to saying, and so let's make a rule that says you shouldn't get married. Wouldn't surprise me. Might even be what they are suggesting. I wouldn't want to read that much into it. I like their response. I also dread their response. I dread their response because of the reason I just said. Again, what they want to do in an effort somehow to be safe, they want to go further than the Scripture goes and perhaps even make a rule that says you shouldn't get married. Not a good thing. Don't go there. And Jesus doesn't let them go there. In response to their idea that singleness is best, we have Jesus speaking in verse 11. Look with me if you would. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement. Amen. (laughs) But only to those whom it has been given. I believe, just in the flow of things, referring back to this idea of being single and not being married. If it's been given to you, it's been gifted to you. Jesus saying, wait, 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 don't start making rules. Don't start jumping to conclusions. Not everybody can accept this. Not everybody should. Jesus makes a lot of sense. Being single is a great thing. It's a great thing. But it's only a great thing if it's been given to you. I believe singleness for life is a gift from God. Some people have the gift of singleness. The Apostle Paul talks about this. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Don't start making rules and regulations that if you're really going to be spiritual, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're really going to be used of Him, then you need to be single. Don't go there. How about 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that that's a characteristic of false teachers who've denied the faith. People who add those kind of rules and regulations to the Bible that real spiritual people shouldn't get married are false teachers who have denied the faith. 1 Timothy 4. Sound familiar? Yeah, it does really sound familiar. You can look up 1 Timothy 4 some other time. Don't make that extreme, rash, unbiblical conclusion. But make sure you don't make another conclusion, and that is that everybody should be married. And that's pretty applicable too, by the way, folks. I might translate that into stop pestering single people and making them feel like if they don't get married, they're not living a real life. They might have the gift of singleness. Maybe what we want to do is inform our minds biblically to know that some people have the gift of singleness and some people don't. And how can we help those people? Whether they're single or married. Wanting to get married or not wanting to get married. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 says, Yet I wish that all men 
Even as I, Paul says, I myself am. What is he talking about? However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. He's talking about singleness. Verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, must be the older widows because he gives different advice to younger widows, First Timothy, that it is good for them if they remain even as I. That is single. That's a good thing. But if they do not have self-control, another way of saying if they don't have the gift, if they don't have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And by the way, that is not somehow discounting the goodness of Genesis 1 and 2. He's just saying, hey, if you, if, if you have the gift from God and you don't have that sexual desire that needs to be met, and God has uniquely gifted you in that way, then hey, you get to do more ministry. You don't have to, to live with your wife in an understanding way because you don't have one. And, and, and you don't have to do something similar with your husband because you don't have one. And you don't have any kids either. So go for it. In one sense, single people should be the ones who serve more than anybody else that we're all supposed to serve. If we're going to follow Paul's model, you're freed up for service. And so this is good to see. But Paul makes sure to not push to asceticism that says somehow you need to deny everything physical and somehow it doesn't really exist. Because by the way, when you do that, it's not reality and it just leads to sexual perversion and sexual sin, much like we've even seen in the Roman Catholic system. It's no wonder it happened. It goes back to 1 Timothy 4 as well. But notice there's the balance. Hey, marriage is a good thing. Singleness is a good thing. What you need to determine is how God has gifted you. And it is a gift from God. It's good. It's where we want to start. The standard isn't singleness. The standard isn't marriage, though that seems to be what most people do. Good to see that. These disciples needed to see that. Finally, verse 12, Jesus elaborates on this idea of being given the gift of singleness. This won't take much time at all, then, then we'll close. He's going to talk about eunuchs, and eunuchs would be those who either don't have a sexual desire, or, not necessarily the same, they don't have a sexual desire, or they don't even have the, the, the sexual capacity. They're not one and the same. But a eunuch is such a person, and he gives three different categories. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. Could be either in that case. They don't have the sexual capacity or they don't have the sexual desire or both. He goes on, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, as much as that make, make you cringe. <laughs> Pretty normal for century culture. You're going to hire, you're going to have a servant who's going to spend a bunch of time with your daughters or your wife or wives. You're going to hire somebody. It may very well be that you're going to have a pretty serious agreement. That's going to be quite, a, quite an employment contract. Eunuchs by men. No longer able to have sexual capacity. Some people are like that. And by the way, Jesus isn't promoting that. and He's, he's not saying anything for or against it. I think I could argue successfully he would be against it. But he's not making it an issue. He's saying this, some of you are this way because of where your place is in culture. Verse 12, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I think that's the best candidate for what Jesus was talking about earlier, for what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. These are people who sought the Lord's guidance and will and, and said, Lord, I, I think this might be true of me. I, I, I don't have these passions that must be met. 
Have you gifted me? Have you given this to me, the gift of singleness? And they work through it in their own mind and perhaps then can conclude, these would conclude, God has gifted me this way and I can say no to being sexually fulfilled for the rest of my life because it's not going to be a sin struggle for me. And I'm going to do this for the greater glory of God because I can serve more. Now again, please don't misunderstand. He's not saying that is what everybody should do. You're going to end up finding yourself in a mess, a la 1 Corinthians 7. It is for those who are uniquely gifted, and if they are, they can do it for the greater glory of God. Being single. And then verse 12 ends with, He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. I like it that he adds that. This isn't for everybody. If you can accept it, accept it. That implies something else. If you can't accept it, I'd be in that category. Don't accept it. Makes sense. Next time we'll talk about questions related to divorce and remarriage that are important questions. We'll also talk about having a strong marriage, which would be divorce-proofing your marriage, if you will. We'll talk about forgiveness. We'll talk about people who get get a divorce and get saved later. We'll talk about all the, the omelet that divorce is. And we'll try to unscramble some of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the teaching time that I had this morning. Thank you for the fact that even as your word says, you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ. And this morning is a testimony of that. That we don't need to flounder about wondering how to think, how to act, how to understand the world we live in, moving from one theory to the next that we can understand, that we can comprehend. We can have a biblical worldview that guides us in our living, that assures us that we can actually think and act in such a way that brings honor and glory to our great Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.